families, neighborhoods, religious institutions, and all the other mediating structures within a child's microsystem weave together to shape the civil society that can produce generations of individual citizens capable of self-governance and cognizant of the lifelong habits and virtues necessary to lead an independent, fulfilling life. What's the bottom line? We must pursue both individual responsibility and institutional support. We cannot confine ourselves and ultimately our children to the false binary choice of blame the system or blame the victim. We can help young people as individuals learn the path to success taken by millions of their predecessors who have overcome hurdles of their own. To reiterate, young people do not typically find success in isolation. They need social support from vibrant, well-functioning, mediating structures. They need support from the family. In short, there is a third way. This is my Black Book Journal. today's show. Remember, if you're enjoying My Black Book Journal, please, on Apple Podcasts, like us, subscribe, and also leave us a comment because I would love to hear from you. Also, I want to tell you about my new substack, at Justly Love Mercy, where you can find it, dannybjr.substack.com. Again, that's dannybjr.substack.com, or just go to substack and put in at Justly Love Mercy. There, I'm seeking to clarify my voice, just talking about life, talking about what does it mean to live a just life, a merciful life, and walk humbly with the Lord. So if you enjoy uh, my Black Book Journal, then please, by all means, you all, uh, leave me a comment. I'd love to hear from you. We have a fantastic season three plan, and we have some exciting episodes. Really looking forward to sharing what we've been able to put together this season with you all. So we're going to go ahead and jump into today's interview with Mr. Ian Rowe, who wrote the book Agency, The Four-Point Plan for All Children to Overcome the Victimhood Narrative and Discover Their Pathway to Power. Look, I would like for you to wrestle with this content. If you're interested in, in what we're talking about, grab the book, think through it, grab your pen, Write through it, jot your thoughts down. And on my Black Book Journal, we read, but we also journal. We think through what we're learning. And so I hope you enjoy today's episode and I look forward to engaging with y'all later. All right. Peace. Welcome everyone to this episode of My Black Book Journal. Today I have joining me Ian V. Rowe. He is a, the author of the book Agency, the four-point plan free for all children to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their pathway to power. Ian Rowe, welcome to My Black Book Journal. Danny, it is so great to um, to join you. I'm, so, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for having me on. 
Well, thank you for being here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation as well. I read your book. I really enjoyed it. So we're going to go ahead and jump in. But before we do, I want to give our listeners an opportunity to hear from you about your journey. And so since you're here, uh, please share your journey of how you got to this point. Uh, wow. Well, you know, that's always a dangerous uh, question <laughs> to ask someone because, uh, well, you know what? Um, I think for most of us, our journey is very much influenced by our parents and our family. And uh, my parents came to the United States in the mid to late 1960s, um, basically in search of the American dream uh, for their for themselves and their two kids. And you know, in the mid to late 1960s was kind of a crazy time, particularly as it relates to race relations in our country. And so my my parents came in eyes wide open. You know, there was a lot of um, uh, riots and, you know, there's a lot going on. But, you know, my parents felt that the country was changing, right? The Civil Rights Act had been passed, the Voting Rights Act, that they basically felt there was opportunity here. So what was interesting, they weren't running from Jamaica. They were coming to the United States. Um and that always stuck with me. Um, you know, not that, you know, race was an issue. My dad always used to say, you know, in Jamaica, he was a black man. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. In Jamaica, he was a man. He was a man. It wasn't until he came to the United States that he realized people saw him as a black man. And that had meaning. Um, and he and my mom always um, basically said, look, there are going to be realities of living in this country that said, though, there is no greater place to pursue opportunity. So that, so that always uh, stuck with me, and it's certainly been part of my journey my entire life. Not that we shouldn't be fighting against breaking down barriers, but if we have the right mindset, resources, tools, supports, you know, there's unlimited opportunity in this country. So that was kind of my foundation growing up. You know, I went to public school in New York City. I'm a K to 12 uh, kid. Um, um, yeah, and in New York City, I went to um, Brooklyn Tech, which is one of the specialized high schools in the city. And at Brooklyn Tech, uh, there were 14 different majors that you could choose from. So you could study architecture, you could study mechanical engineering. I chose electrical engineering in for my junior and senior year, and it was amazing. Like I, I. I didn't realize it then how beneficial it was to have this kind of choice in high school that really allowed me to explore alternative pathways that I otherwise wouldn't. And, um, and that set me up. I then went to Cornell University. I, I studied computer science engineering at Cornell. So it just really set me up. Um, I then worked in management consulting. Then I went to, you know, I was doing some, I, I was, when I was in management consulting for six years, I was mentoring in public schools, you know, just these amazing kids that just by accident of zip code or accident of family structure weren't being given access to the same opportunities that I had. And these kids are brilliant and talented, and uh, but we were losing out on their talent. And I, you know, and I, and I was being wooed at the time to pursue being a coming partner at what was then Anderson Consulting, now it's Accenture. I basically just said to myself, you know, what if I could take what I'd learned in the private sector 
and apply it in the public sector, in public education in particular. So I got off that, I got off that ramp. I got off that career path, but I decided to go to business school. I was fortunate enough to get into Harvard Business School for two years to kind of figure out what would it mean if I took a completely different turn in my professional life. And uh, I had an amazing two years at, at Harvard, at the business school. Um, I started writing for the school newspaper. I met this woman, um, Wendy Kopp, um, who was the founder of Teach for America. And I did the crazy thing after Harvard Business School. I went to work for this nonprofit, $25,000 working at Teach for America. Got to freak my parents out. <laughs> like, Harvard, you're going to, you know, you're going to, um, um, so, but, you know, my, my rationale always is, um, you know, you go to a place like Harvard or, or like the, a lot of the educations we have, that's your ultimate backstop. You know, you could always go get a, a real job, right? But it started me on a whole new journey because I learned a lot at Teach for America, what works in our education system, what doesn't work in our education education system, the importance of having really high expectations, fantastic teachers, the policy issues. Um, and, and, and really, I mean, just to fast forward to the present, I mean, I, I started on this journey, Teach for America, then I ran my own internet business for a while. 9-11 happened. Um, I had an opportunity to then go to the work at the White House. Um, actually, during the time that the No Child Left Behind legislation was being passed, mm -hmm. I saw a lot of the inner workings of that, the, 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 what the hopes were, and then the unintended consequences, which we can talk about. Um, I worked at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I was at MTV for six years, understanding the power of pop culture on influencing uh, young minds. Gates Foundation, we gave away, you know, literally close to half a billion dollars in one year. So I saw a lot of different facets of how education work and does not work in our country. And I ultimately came to the conclusion in 2010, I needed to put myself on the line. I needed mm. to run a network of schools myself to really understand what was the what are the real challenges to bring a great school to life. So I ran a network of public charter schools, uh, elementary and middle public charter schools for a decade because uh, I made a 10 year commitment. And again, we can go into detail on that. Um, and then most recently, I launched a new network of international baccalaureate high schools uh, in the Bronx, um, because in many ways, we need the final frontier of great high schools to really um, give kids um, a great shot at living the American dream. Um, and along the way, I have experienced um, working with kids in almost every capacity, rich kids, poor kids, black kids, white kids, Asian kids, Hispanic kids, kids in homeless shelters, in all sorts of settings. And I've just observed kids who have come from challenging circumstances as they progress into young adulthood, some recreate the same challenges of cycle of disadvantage, broken families, you know, and unfortunately that has happened. And yet I've seen other kids come through those same similar challenges and have made different decisions to break their cycle of disadvantage. And I poured everything I had into writing this book, Agency, because what I saw for those kids who were able to change their trajectory, they had what I call this sense of personal agency. 
and that there were usually these institutions that they became part of that made all the difference. And, you know, that's why I've written my book and that's why I do the work that I do. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. This is why I like to give people an opportunity to share their own stories because the intricacies and all the unique detail. And you actually go into some of that um, in your book. You talk about your parents a lot. You talk about how they shape your life. You even talk about your own discovering your own agency um, at a young age and the decisions that you made and what school you would go to. So thank you so much for sharing that. No, sure. Yeah. yeah. And I I think each of us probably has some kind of epiphany moment um, in their life where you just see the world differently. And for mm-hmm. me, it happened at like 12 years old. And um, my, we had just moved from Brooklyn to Queens. And um, I was in a junior high school that, you know, was still um, racially integrated, but there were a lot of um, issues, unfortunately. Um, a lot of vi- violent incidents, you know, um, black students fighting with white students. And it, it was it was a crazy time. And the, um, the school board decided to uh, create an annex. So another junior high school in, an, in another town, Rosedale, a couple towns over, which was predominantly white. And basically, that's how they tried to solve the problem. Because what essentially happened is that all the white parents in our school, in our junior high school, took their kids out and sent them mm-hmm. to the junior high school in Rosedale and, you know, I'll always remember it. My parents, you know, came to the United States in search of the American dream under the assumption that where the white kids go, that's where the better education will be. They were going to take me out. They were going to take me out of my school and send me to be one of the few black kids at this uh, junior high school in Rosedale. And, you know, I mean, look, my parents would crawl through broken glass for me, right? They, 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 and me and my brother, they would have done anything if they thought it was the right thing to do. But something just didn't feel right about leaving my school solely because of our race. You know, like, why is it that just because our school that would have been left, you know, basically as a virtually segregated all black school, why did that have to be bad? Just, you know, why did that have to inherently, inherently be bad? Now, always remember the Sunday night before the morning that we were supposed to put the transfer papers in, I begged my parents not to transfer me. You know, I had never stood up to my parents in that way. I never challenged them on anything. I just begged and pleaded, like, I'll, 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 you know, I'll work hard. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll do anything I can to stay because I like my teachers. I, I like my school. I want to stay. And, um, and they relented. And they let me stay. And I do. I think it's the first moment. I wouldn't have called it this then, but I think it's the first moment I experienced what I now define as agency, that that I had a role to play in shaping my own future. And I think so many kids are growing up at a time where they don't feel that. They don't feel that they have a role to play or that there are other forces impeding their ability to craft their own destiny. And we just got to break that. We have to let more kids know the power that they do have. Yeah. And you really brought that out in your book, especially in, in you, you made this known up front that you wanted to find a third way to discuss these issues beyond the vain, blame the victim narrative and also the blame the system narrative, um, which we see a lot um, in our in our major major political and social discourse why was that so important to you to find this third way to articulate for those who are trying to move students and families forward 
Yeah. Thanks, Danny. It's a great question. I mean, I am um, a lot of my work is trying to not just say what I reject, but saying what I'm for, <laughs> you know, I feel like we live in a world where we're, we're just constantly fighting. There's polarization and there's demonization, there's cancel culture. And so it's clear what people are trying to stop or what they hate. And for me, we, ha we have to, we have to, we have to have the courage to put forth an empowering alternative, right? You know, you gotta have, take a shot, <laughs> you know, you can't just shout in the rain. And what I've really noticed in the past few years, especially since George Floyd, there's been excel an acceleration of these kind of two dominant narratives. As you said, one I call blame the system and the other I call blame the victim. And in the blame the system narrative, that's a view of our country as an inherently oppressive nation. It is systemically discriminatory on a number of dimensions. It's systemically racist. You know, there's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Capitalism is evil. And if you're of a certain race, gender, economic class, literally systems are rigged against you. And that these systems are so powerful that you as an individual are powerless to overcome them. And that's why, you know, you see ideas like reparations or, or massive like government redistribution programs being, you know, sort of um, getting a resurgence of ideas because there's a, there's a belief that individuals can't solve the problem. We need all these massive top-down solutions. Now, of course, the challenge with that kind of blame the system ideology is that you as an individual are powerless kind of robs you of your own sense of agency. But on the other side, there's this also equally troubling narrative of blame the victim, mm -hmm. right? And in that view, America is great. You know, America is the land of opportunity. America is, there's opportunity, the streets are paved with gold. And if you're not successful, it's your fault. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You didn't do the right thing. And, you know, of course, you know, the challenge with that ideology is that if you're a kid that's born, you know, potentially in, into an unstable home, you're not part of a strong faith community to get those supports, you don't have access to good schools, you know, it's really hard to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? And so we are unfairly demonizing young people in particular who, you know, aren't given an equal shot. I mean, I run schools in a district, District 12 here in New York City, of the kids that started ninth grade in 2015, four years later, only 7% graduated from high school ready for college, right? I mean, and that means 93% of those ninth graders started and either they dropped out of high school along the way or they did earn their high school diploma but still couldn't do math nor reading without remediation if they did go to college. So that's crazy. And yet there's a cap in New York. If you wanted to open a brand new charter school, you couldn't do it because there literally is a legislative barrier. A seven-year-old can't solve that problem. So we have to be able to acknowledge that there are systemic barriers that stand in the way while also demanding young people 
um, own their personal responsibility for advancing their own lives. But these two narratives of blame the victim and blame the system, it's like either, well, you're helpless because the system is too um, tough, or it's your fault. That doesn't do anything for kids. Yeah, you know, I've spent my career in ministry and in city government, um, and I currently run an organization focused on education, character, mentor, mentorship, leadership, and providing those opportunities for students. And I felt I found myself as I was reading your book really agreeing with some of your conclusions because we don't treat students a lot with agency. I think it's a dignity issue, right? Like we don't treat them like they have the ability to create their own futures um, and preparing them with the tools they need. And you really spoke about this um, and you laid this out talking about your success or the success sequence um, and how it was important to teach students that this is a proven sequence that can lead to a better future. Can you share more about that sequence with our listeners? Yeah, and, and I think it's important that I share a little bit of the reason that I've become so adamant about teaching this, you know, because I had been running schools in for six years, you know, twenty I started in 2010, then 2016, demand for our schools was off the charts. You know, our schools in the Bronx each year, because we run public charter schools, each year we had maybe 200 open seats, but our wait list was nearly 5,000 people, you know? all primarily low-income Black and Hispanic families, that all they wanted to do was have their kids have, an, have a fair shot at success. And so we decided to move our headquarters from Tribeca in Manhattan to uh, the South Bronx and 149th Street, 3rd Avenue, you know, in the hood. And, and um, you know, but that that's where our kids were. I mean, there was a needle exchange on the corner, so we had addicts walking by. But you know what? There were also kids in that community. And, and, they, and so... Since all of our new schools were going to open in the Bronx, let's move our headquarters there. So we decided to do a walking tour of the neighborhood just so our um, staff could get to know, like, where's the local bodega? Where's the local deli? Where's the local bank? And uh, as we were walking as a group in the distance, right off 149th Street, I saw this 27-foot baby blue (laughs) Winnebago truck. And all these adults were around it, right? And and it was just interesting. It was almost like the ice cream truck when, you know, kids, like the truck mm-hmm. coming, the kids are excited. It was similar to that. I was like, what is that? And as we get closer, there's graffiti lettering on the side of the truck that said, who's your daddy? Like, what is that? Well, it turns out the who's your daddy truck is a mobile DNA testing center where low-income folks were spending somewhere between $350 and $500 to take these um, paternity tests. Like, could you be my sister? Are you my father? Um, really deep questions about identity. And the more I learned about this truck, it was run by this guy, Jared Rosenthal. He was an entrepreneur. He had had a, several trucks because demand was so high. VH1 had had a reality show mm-hmm. based on the truck called swab stories because they took a dna swab and you look at the promotion google it now just look up swab stories you know 
will Joe find out if this is his real father? You know, and it was almost becoming entertainment. And, and, but this wasn't a joke. This was real life in my district that I was running schools. And so, and then, I, you know, the more research I did, and I knew that family structure was an issue because you can't run schools and not know that. But there was something that struck me in that moment that I felt I couldn't turn back. Like our schools had to play a different role for helping young people think about yeah. their future. You know, the non-marital birth rate in the community we were in was like 84%, 84% of the babies were born outside of marriage, all sorts of implications. And I always say single parenthood doesn't necessarily, you know, sentence you to a life of doom and nor does being married into a two parent household guarantee you success. But the data is overwhelming that your likelihood of success is dramatically higher if you think differently about the timing of family formation. So all this leads back to the success sequence. Mm -hmm. Because that is data that I didn't know then. I I mean, I started uncovering all this information. I heard this, that this data that if you finish just your high school degree, then get a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And then if you have children, marriage first, 97% of millennials who follow that series of decisions avoid poverty. That's, I mean, again, it's 97%, so it's not a guarantee. And the vast majority, by the way, enter the middle class or beyond Mm -hmm. or even higher. So I said, wow, my kids in middle school and certainly now in high school should know this information because if you're living in a community where you're not surrounded by you know, married, two-parent households, or that's not the norm, you may think that that's kind of the universe, or you don't know all the benefits. And so we started teaching it, teaching the success sequence, and my gosh, the level of opposition. You can't talk about that. You're imposing middle-class values. You're, 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 you're taking the, the eye off the prize. The real issue is systemic racism. You, you, you can't talk about this stuff. You're blaming the victim. It was really interesting. By even talking about this stuff, people said I was doing, I was playing into one of the narratives that I'm mm-hmm. saying is, um, is a problem. And, and so, you know, so even I had to step back and say, is that what I'm doing? And I think I've come to the conclusion that we have to be honest with, with the communities that we are all seeking to serve. We just have to have the courage to tell the truth about what the likely outcomes are of certain kinds of decisions and what the likely rewards are for different kinds of decisions. You know, and you, you said that earlier about courage, but when working honestly with young people and families, they appreciate when you give them an opportunity to hear truth, right? We don't, we don't dumb it down. We don't make it seem like they can't attain it. We tell the truth, right? We bring in experts. We bring in people that can help them get to where they say they want to be. Um, right. But we're just the bridge, right? But if we're yeah. not courageous, if we're not honest, if we're not truthful, then we're not treating people with dignity. We're not respecting their agency. Oh. Wow. I mean, you, 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 you just said a, a very quick story as we were designing Vertex Partnership Academy, this new high school. A couple of years ago, pre-COVID, I visited um, a high school in New Orleans 
um, you know, great, one of the best high schools in, in the city of New Orleans. And uh, it was a group of ninth graders, again, almost all low-income kids, um, a wide range of ethnic backgrounds, actually. And I said to them, because this was at the time, I was facing a lot of pushback for talking about something like the success sequence in schools. And so I said to the ninth graders, I asked the teacher, you know, could I have this conversation? I said, hey, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm designing a high school and I wanted to, and I've just asked you a question. I said this to the ninth graders. If you knew that there were a series of decisions in your control that 97% of the time that if you followed them or other people just like you who followed them resulted in you avoiding poverty or entering the middle class or beyond, would you want to know those decisions? And they looked at me, they were like, well, yeah, <laughs> why, why wouldn't I? And I said, <laughs> I said, you know, well, there's some grownups that think maybe I shouldn't be telling this to you. And they looked at me like I was crazy. They were like, what are you talking about? You tell me the information, then we can decide if it's useful or not. And that's the dignity that you're talking about. You know, and so often I think we infantilize the very people we are seeking to serve and empower. And, and sometimes providing straight up information, it may not get you all the way there, but at least you start to empower people with information that they can use to make a difference in their own lives. And another honest piece as we get ready to conclude, I want to talk about your free framework, but you bring this up and being courageous is that a lot of times people will push back against that, that sequence or morality when they kind of espouse those on those, those values in their own life. Right. Like we've seen these things play a significant role um, in our own lives, the value of marriage, um, the value of finding full-time work, the value of ensuring that I, I get my degree, then I do this and I do this. Like this is what leads to success. Um, and it doesn't always happen perfectly. No, of but course. we do understand, like you said, that it leads to better outcomes. So let's talk about the the free framework, family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. You lay these out as a way forward to provide, to deal with some of the challenges that you mentioned in your book. For our guests, can you share more about that free framework and why you believe it's the path forward for young people in our yeah, communities? Thank, thank you. And, and you know, as, as I said at the beginning, I've, I've, just like you, I've now been working with young people now for several decades, right? And I've seen those instances where, again, kids from challenging situations recreate those same challenges to kind of recreate the cycle of disadvantage. But I've seen other kids um, make very different decisions. And I've and I my observation is that there are these four institutions: family, religion, education, entrepreneurship. That if embraced, can make all the difference for a young person. So, starting with family, those kids who have you know as they made their passage into young adulthood, regardless of the family that they were from the choices they made about the family they formed was very different. So that's why something like the success sequence is important because even if they may have come from a dysfunctional, broken home, single parenthood, or even married to, you know, dysfunctional married situation, the family they formed usually, or at least on the pathway to married to parent household, stable relationship, they found, they, they, they found a mate and usually they had, you know, finished their education. Usually they had some kind of work. And so they had a foundation moving forward. So that's been one of the first big observations that 
the, the kids who made a difference, have broke their own personal cycle of disadvantage, recognized that the most consequential decision that a human being can make is the decision to bring another human being into the world. Yeah. And so they thought a lot about that. So that, so that was the first thing about it, just timing of the creation of their own family. The second observation I would make of the people who I've seen be successful and break the pattern is that they had a personal faith commitment. You know, they lived by a moral code. Didn't matter if it was Christianity, Catholicism, um, Buddhism, Muslim. It's just they had a moral code. And they were part of a community of people that loved them, that there were rituals that all constantly reminded them that there is a certain way of being. And a personal faith commitment can mean that for a lot of young people. If you look at the data, you know, look at the high levels of loneliness, depression, alienation that exists for a lot of young people. But if you look at the data, kids with a personal faith commitment, much lower levels of depression, much lower levels of, of isolation and loneliness. And that matters. And that was part of my observation. E, so that's the family, that's the R for religion. And then E, education, usually kids who were able to succeed benefited from some kind of educational freedom or school choice. They went to a charter school, their parents scrounged up to go send them to a private school, or they moved to the suburbs to go to a good public school. But somehow they benefited from a strong educational program that was more catered to their needs. And then the final E for entrepreneurship, if you form a strong family, have a personal faith commitment, have, act, have had access to a good education, that usually leads to someone who has built an entrepreneurial mindset, someone who's a problem solver in their own life. And, and by the way, it includes being able to work, even having an entrepreneurial spirit at work, but it's this larger idea that I can build wealth or I can own my destiny. I have... I'm an entrepreneur. Like when I encounter challenges, I can overcome them. So when really seeing that set of institutions and seeing that young people who were able to be successful had a sense of agency. So the question is, well, where does agency come from? You know, if agency is the force of your free will guided by moral discernment, where does your ability to become morally discerning come from? And I've seen the embrace of these four pillars family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. And that's my alternative. You know, I, I'm, I'm putting forth an idea. And we, ha we have to move beyond blame the victim and blame the system to strategies that empower young people, to give them a pathway to their own power. Well, you all, to get more, you're going to have to pick up the book and read it yourself, um, which I think you should read it. Grab a pen. I had a pen in hand. I marked the book all up because I wrestled with it. I wrestled with the concept. I, I wrestled with some of the quotes. I wrestled with some of the conclusions. I don't think I agreed with everything. I was things I was like, ah. but it was important for me to take time to think through uh, what you're discussing. And I really appreciate you writing this book. I think it's really important uh, to help push, like you said, those courageous narratives forward. So before we get you out of here, we have a, a segment on my Black Book Journal called Reading Brings Me Joy. Um, have you been reading anything recently that has brought you joy? Oh my gosh. Um, well, that's it. So, so two things I, I've been reading. One is a poem and, and one is a book. Um, mm. 
the, a poem, um, and I'm having, I'm hoping to have all of our students actually read this, is a poem called Invictus mm-hmm. by um, William Ernest Henley. And I actually have it at the beginning of Agency. But the, the poem Invictus is, is about adversity and real challenge. But the two lines at the end, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Oh my God. Those two lines are always for me. When I read that poem, it kind of gives me a sense of, I know I'm going to face some challenges, but I have within me the capacity to overcome. So, so that I I have read. um, And it's, so it's a, it's a very important poem for me. And then I've um, recently reread the alchemist uh, by Paulo Coelho, and it's about a, a young shepherd boy that goes um, on this incredible journey. And there's a line where the alchemist uh, says to the shepherd boy, because he's scared, um, he doesn't know what to do, and he says, um, "No heart has uh, no heart has ever suffered when it goes in search of its dreams." Just mm-hmm. a just a really beautiful line, and. Um, I like to think I'm on that journey too, you know, there's a little bit of suffering, but overall, you know, you know, you're doing the right thing. And I think for my heart and for hopefully everyone impacts, um, you know, that's the kind of joy that I want to be able to bring to the rest of my community. Thank you for sharing. Um, where can our listeners follow your work? Um, well, I, well, you can come to vertexacademies.org. That's our new international baccalaureate high school in the Bronx. We're trying to create a very innovative um, structure where students can um, pursue traditional college or um, university pathway in a rigorous program or career pathways where they can, similar to what I had at Brooklyn Tech, they can major in different areas and actually do apprenticeships in computer science, um, healthcare. So vertexacademies.org is uh, one place to learn about my high school work. I'm also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. So if you go to www.aei.org, you can find a lot of my work there. Um, and I also have a, a, my own podcast. I need to have you on my podcast, um, The Invisible Men, where I feature just amazing black men that not enough of our community knows about. And so, um, so that's, uh, that's a couple of places right there. Awesome. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining us on My Black Book Journal. You all follow his work. Again, read the book and we'll catch you next time. Thank you all. Danny, thank you.